<laughs> oh, turn it up. Here we go. Up here with your crew, winning all some view. Everything that love stack right in front of you. Got your icon pass, power slash it. 50 plus destinations. Speaking of, did you get your icon pass yet, Sean? I'm on iconpass.com dropping in right now. Wow. From just $2.59 adult, everyone knows you get the best price in the spring. Yeah, that's the good stuff. Okay, done. So pass the good stuff. Yeah, it's the good stuff. So since Thursday morning, we've been hearing firecrackers popping throughout the neighborhood. There's been barbecue smoke flowing through the neighborhood for the past week. And all of it was being done in anticipation of Independence Day. And I have to be honest with you, Independence Day is one of my favorite holidays of the year. It's in my top three. I bet you can guess the other two. But this holiday is an excuse for me to spend most of my time outside, which being in Northern Virginia is just so great because the weather this week has been lovely. It gives me an excuse to spend time around my barbecue smoker and to come up with new barbecue sauce recipes. But it's also a time for us to pause and remember that we live in a nation where independence and freedom are values that give us identity. An identity as a collective people who come from differing backgrounds, races, and ethnicities. I mean, freedom and independence are hallmarks of what it means for each of us to be an American. The Galatian church has earned itself a reputation over the years. Throughout his letter to the church in Galatia, Paul has held nothing back. And because Paul has held nothing back in his writing, the church in Galatia, 2,000 years ago, has a pretty bad reputation. The intensity and urgency that Paul writes with has led many scholars, New Testament scholars, to refer to this particular letter in the New Testament as Paul's angry letter. From chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 6, verse 18, Paul does not hold back any theological punches. And the funny thing is, is that this six-chapter letter can be easily missed as you thumb your way from 2 Corinthians and look for his letter to the Ephesians. But what happens is when you thumb from 2 Corinthians to Ephesians is that you miss angry Paul writing, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly exhibited as crucified. The only thing I want to learn from you is this. Did you receive the Spirit by doing works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Having started with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? Can you imagine if your pastor got into the pulpit on Sunday morning and called you foolish? How that would be received? We're going to find out in a few minutes. (laughs) If Paul can do it, why can't I? Regardless of all the good things that the church in Galatia may have been doing, Paul, because of Paul's no-holds-barred writing, the Galatians have been known as the foolish church throughout the history of Christianity. And to be fair, I think this critique is a bit harsh, especially century after century, 
After all, it was the Corinthians, not the Galatians. And the Corinthians are more famously known for their patient love. However, it was the Corinthians that would get drunk every time they gathered around the Lord's table. So who has the worst reputation in the church? The passionate words of Paul seem to be more directed at his theological opponents in Galatia and less towards the average person who had found faith in Jesus Christ and was trying to figure out what this new faith meant living in a community of other people who were also trying to figure out what it meant to live into this life of new faith. Paul's theological opponents in Galatia had convinced this early group of Christians, Gentile converts, of the necessity of adhering to the law of Moses, specifically the practice of circumcision as a prerequisite for their conversion to faith. But Paul doesn't have time for niceties, greetings, or blessings as he's known for doing in his other letters. Paul is fired up and it's time to take the gloves off and start throwing some punches. The issue for angry Paul, particularly when it comes to circumcision, comes down to following the law of Moses or faithfully following the law of Jesus Christ. Are Galatian Christian converts to follow the 613 Torah prescriptions or to follow the two laws given by Christ? Love the Lord your God and your neighbor. And if you're thinking to yourself, well, who's my neighbor? Don't worry, we're going to get to that one next week. For the newly formed church in Galatia, along with churches being formed throughout this region, there was great debate among the faithful about what it meant to adhere to the law. There were some that were advocating that those outside the original covenant established by God with Israel, that they would be required to participate in some new interpretation of the law in order to be welcomed into a community of faith. While there were others who advocated abandoning the law of Moses entirely as those outside the original covenant established by God came to faith in Christ. The practice of circumcision for Gentile converts was a question of identity, obedience, and assimilation. Since circumcision was a physical indication of the original covenant established by God, the question then is, should Gentile converts be required to be circumcised as they found their new identity in Jesus Christ and began to live lives that were obedient to the gospel, to the law of Christ? Paul was not writing to the church in Galatia to persuade them to abandon the law or to even abandon the practice of circumcision. Rather, Paul was writing to challenge the law's ability to make humans right with God. And since the law is about what we do, Paul is questioning our ability to make our relationship right with God. Paul is questioning if humans can be faithful to the law without turning the law into a new litmus test. Should the law, or rather is the law, and adherence to it a prerequisite for experiencing the grace and mercy of God in Christ. 
The grace and mercy of God was never intended to be oppressive or burdensome. Remember, in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. He did not say my yoke is oppressive and my burden is heavy. Time and time again in Jesus' healings and the signs he performed and throughout his teachings, the grace and mercy of God is something that is to be welcomed into someone's life and not something that is to be dreaded or feared. Then for Paul, the answer to whether or not the law is a prerequisite for experiencing the grace and mercy of God in Christ Jesus, the answer is a hard no because oppression and burden are not synonymous with the grace and mercy of God. Paul's questions and his theological jabs about the law, they're not limited to 2,000 years ago not limited to the ancient church. Today, in the church, in 2019, we wrestle with questions about the law. We may not be having a vigorous debate about circumcision, but I'm sure if we all took a moment and we paused, each of us could come up with a list of prerequisites required of a person before or after they come to faith in Christ. And just as it did in the ancient church, the law as a prerequisite to the grace and mercy of God has the ability to transform the freedom we have received from Christ into the check of a box on an ever-growing list. Obedience to the checklist is not freedom in Christ, and obedience to this checklist in turn takes our focus off of following Christ and turns our attention to following and completing the litmus test. To make Paul's words throughout this entire letter plain, simply put, it's foolish to think that we can fool God with self-righteous works of the law to achieve salvation. Christ's crucifixion and Christ's resurrection are sufficient for all people. It's foolish to think that circumcision, works of the law, is a sufficient alternative to the gospel. When we buy into the idea that there is something necessary for salvation apart from the grace and mercy of God in Christ, we become like the ancient church, and Paul will tell us that we are foolish for turning towards a different gospel. It's foolish to, to fail to see the universal scope of God's grace. That same grace that brought the ones outside the original covenant into the presence of Christ's grace and mercy. Paul's Galatian opponents believed that Gentile converts first needed to be grafted into this original covenant established by God with Israel. And Paul wrote that we, all of us, everyone, are children of God through faith. Clothing ourselves in Christ removes the title of Jew or Greek, Jew or Gentile. Paul continues that there's no longer slave or free, there's no longer male or female, for all of you, everyone, in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you have Abraham, then you are Abraham's offspring, 
heirs according to the promise. We are foolish if we think we can fool God. The focus of the law, more often than not, is us. Acts that we can do to save ourselves, when the reality is, Paul tells us, that is the indwelling of God's Spirit that produces the saving works in our lives. We are foolish, Paul writes, to put our focus in the wrong place. Our attention on the cross is to be focused on Christ's faithfulness because every time we place our attention, our focus on our own works, our faithfulness falls short. The law in place of the gospel is an attempt to hide the scandal of the cross, that Jesus came to save all, everyone. There's not an asterisk. And belonging to Christ, all are heirs according to the promise. Not some people are heirs according to the promise. Not this group or that group. All. Everyone, including each of you. According, or avoiding the scandal of the cross enables us to feel religious apart from Christ Avoiding the scandal of the cross enables us to say things like, I find God in nature, or whatever hobby we have, when the reality is, for Christians, those who have died to themselves in those baptismal waters, we find God in Christ. Law-abiding righteousness misses the real-life, self-sacrificing love of God, and it misses the power of of God's Spirit in Christians and among Christian communities. Christ has freed us from the law. You know, this is the time of year when we celebrate in big, loud, obnoxious ways the freedom that we have because of where we live. The celebration started earlier in the week, and because of a soccer game that I'm sure many of you are hoping to be home to watch at 11 o'clock, the celebrations will most likely continue through the rest of the day. We are celebrating that through the declaring of independence, the United States was formed and gave birth to a new nation. For us, though, for those of us that are gathering here before we gather in front of TV's to watch a soccer game today. For us, Christ's church, those who proclaim Christ to be Lord of Lords and King of Kings, our freedom, the freedom we have from the law, is found through our dependence upon Christ's faithfulness and not our own ability to follow the law independently, the law of Moses or the law that we create for others. Through our dependence on Christ, and not the law, God has promised to be present, empowering and moving not just us, but all of creation into the new creation made possible by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen.